welcome to Talking Migration. My name is Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the University of Manchester. At the end of March this year, the UK government published the new plan for immigration policy paper and consultation period, which ran to the beginning of May. The policy paper sets out plans to reform the asylum system, as well as other parts of the immigration system, such as regulations of uh, naturalisation. The plans have been widely criticised, both for being unworkable and for having serious negative impact on the well-being of those affected. To discuss what the plans entail and some of the critique, I'm joined by Paul Thomas, Professor of Public Law, and William Wheeler, Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in Social Anthropology, both at the University of Manchester. I started by asking what they think the most significant changes are, and you will hear William Wheeler first. Yeah, it seems to me that the most significant change is this separation between people who are deemed to have entered the country illegally and those who are deemed to have come via what are called safe and legal routes. So already there's a distinction between people who um, come on resettlement programmes, who um, get leave to remain on arrival and an integration package versus those who come of their own accord, who have to apply for asylum and during that process have no no right to work or access benefits um, and are housed and supported by the Home Office. And the difference that is proposed in the new plans is that if people have entered illegally, then their claims will be deemed inadmissible meaning that they will be um, returned to a safe third country, meaning France or another EU country, if possible, which almost certainly won't be possible because no returns agreements are in place. Or if if, if that's not possible, to grant people a temporary temporary status, which falls far short of refugee status. And this is the point of the plans that's been roundly condemned as an assault on the principle of asylum. And this, I think, is the area where we're likely to see the greatest tangible impact. I think for me, another major change is the the proposed shift away from dispersing asylum seekers into the community while their claims are being considered um, to housing people in reception centres. There are also changes um, around the provision of support to um, refused asylum seekers, which will be restricted even further than it already is, pushing yet more people into destitution. So, for example, um, families with children will no longer be um, allowed to stay in their accommodation after their claim has been refused. Um, And this, in fact, has all been legislated for in 2016, but has never actually been implemented. And and in the new plans, it's still unclear how how this is going to play out in practice, um, except that it's clear that the cost will still fall, will fall as it always does on local authorities. And and these plans may well be subject to legal challenge. And then there are also proposals around the process of claiming asylum, um, introducing what's called a good faith requirement, reforming the appeals process, reducing access to judicial review. Um, But again, the kind of the details of this to me are quite unclear and a lot of it doesn't seem wholly new or a lot of it seems like reviving policies that have previously been ruled unlawful, such as fast track appeals. so yeah, it's kind of unclear how this is going to play, how any of this is going to play out in practice. Um, one glimmer of reason um, in this area of the plans is what is described as a more generous access to legal advice, but this only applies to people who are in detention and does nothing to address a decade of legal aid cuts. Um, so all this kind of these, these are justified in terms of reducing the backlog and expediting the process, um, but they do nothing to address the inefficiency of. And the inefficiency and inconsistency of Home Office decision making, um, and they do nothing to address the well-documented culture of disbelief within the Home Office, this kind of assumption that people are um, lying and need to prove otherwise. If anything, they look to entrench this culture of disbelief further and further restrict access to justice.
Great, thank you. And there's lots of things there to talk about. I'll go to Robert now and then perhaps um, we'll, we'll unpick some of those issues. Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to highlight about three issues um, quite briefly. I think the first point is that there's important um, uh, proposed changes here on asylum, but there's also um, the, the, it's the plan for, for immigration, new plan for immigration. It goes wider than um, just asylum. And, you know, uh, asylum is a very, very important issue, but there's a lot of other, you know, non-asylum parts of the immigration system as well. The second point is there are some potential good things in the plan. And I know, I, I suspect we're going to, you know, talk about, you know, uh, critically analysing what's, what's not so great in the plan. But one point I would highlight is about, um, there's a separate chapter about supporting victims of, modern slavery and you know that is potentially um, a beneficial a positive change that, that 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 could be introduced and my third point is that all of this plan it really depends upon what actually happens in practice how it is delivered and how you know the proposals like really work in practice and in this respect, I just highlight the fact that this depends an awful lot on the capacity and the what I call the organisational competence of this government department, the Home Office. Um, and it, it's, it's a department that's under considerable stress and pressure and um, uh, uh, financial pressure as well. So, you know, that... That's the, the wider background um, uh, to, to, to the plan about, you know, how does it actually work in practice? And does the Home Office, does it really have the capacity and capability um, to, to deliver? Because if you look at the reports of the Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, um, they're not encouraging. So, uh, you know, best laid plans of mice and men sometimes go awry. That's, that's the risk. And um, if, you're, if you're someone like me who's been following this area for over 20 years, um, uh, you know, that, that's quite a common thought about, you know, how, how is this actually going to work in practice? Do you think the motivation behind the new policy um, is justified? So um, I guess there's one of the core um, motivations behind it is that the current system is being... Uh, abused in uh, quotation marks uh, or, or that they, you know that these policies are actually required to um, come to terms with the so-called problem so do you agree that there is such a problem or are they trying to address the right issues? In a word no um, I don't think it's justified but I find it kind of hard to engage with any discussion about the justification of the motivation when I feel that the whole framing is based on um, racialized divisive stereotypes that kind of violently distort reality. So one of the key framing devices of the plans is this kind of humanitarian concern for those who are drowning trying to reach the UK. And this is kind of premised on the idea that there are safe legal routes and people shouldn't be coming by the via those illegal routes. What is kind of ignored in this is that there are very, very few safe legal routes to claim asylum. You know, there's no possibility um, for, say, a Christian convert in Iran to apply for a humanitarian visa. The only way of um, 
the, the, only, the only form of safe legal route is if you're handpicked by the UNHCR from a refugee camp. And since 2016, the number of refugees resettled in the UK in this way is only 26,000 compared to, say, the millions in Lebanon or Uganda. Um, for everyone else, the only way of reaching the UK is the unsafe, illegal route. But what makes these routes unsafe and illegal is not some kind of natural process, but they are created by the UK and the EU's policies of border fortification, you know, the, sort of the criminalisation of irregular migration. But by obscuring this point, the plans get dressed up in this kind of humanitarian compassion. And it's quite striking that they talk, they talk about the women and children who are drowning cr cross, crossing the channel. And at the same time, the plans with absolutely no sense of contradiction conflate those entering illegally with economic migrants. And suddenly then the plans talk about the young men who are crossing the channel, the state who are the dangerous figure of the economic migrant. And I think it's quite kind of, one of the things that's quite striking about these plans is if we, we look back to the um, if we look back to the 1998 white paper that established the UK's current asylum system, um, there are kind of striking similarities in the framing. So that 1998 white paper was entitled "Fairer, Faster, Firmer: A Modern Approach to Immigration and Asylum," and just as in the current plans, it characterised a system that was failing under the weight of applications, and located that failure in the figure of the economic migrant who was unfairly abusing or gaming the system. And what's omitted from this picture is the failings of decision decision making, the long delays, the wrong decisions um, within the Home Office. Instead, the blame is cast on the economic migrant. Now, like a lot of um, migration scholars and activists, I find the distinction between an economic migrant and a refugee problematic. But even if we recognize um, that this distinction exists in international law between, say, someone who's fleeing conflict and someone who's lost their land in a land dispute and has nowhere else to go due to encroaching desertification, even if we exist that, even if we acknowledge that this distinction exists, does it really make sense to talk about the latter figure as an abusive figure, someone who's gaming a system that somehow they magically understand all the, the way the rules work and all the loopholes? Um, but I think this framing in terms of abuse, which has been constant over recent decades, is extremely significant because it casts this dichotomy between the political and economic migrant as a dichotomy between a passive victim and the kind of the excessive agency of the economic migrant, which, and both figures are, of course, racialized and gendered. Um, so I think, and I think it's important to compare back to that 1998 white paper, which established the current asylum system, and to that rhetoric back then of a system out of control, a system that's being routinely abused. Because I think it's no coincidence that when you frame the issue in that way, that the system that transpires turns out to be an abusive controlling system. So I mentioned already the culture of disbelief. And so in my research, I've come across lots and lots of people who have been wrongly refused asylum often again and again over five, 10, 20 years, people who have been failed by the system, who are cast as failed asylum seekers. Um, and often this disbelief kind of touches on core aspects of their identity, such as religion or sexuality or ethnicity, or the disbelief might touch on the traumatic experience of torture or rape. So it's hardly surprising that this, um, this disbelief and this these routine refusals um, have a really severe impact on people's mental health. Yeah, and then and then during this um, all this cycle of people claiming and um, claiming asylum being refused, putting in fresh claims, they're dipping in and out of asylum support, which the rates are about um, just over £35 a week. Um, if you're a refused asylum seeker, this isn't provided in cash. People are housed often in unsuitable accommodation on a no-choice basis. 
And I think it's important to highlight that even outside the detention estate, that um, there's a very high level of control in the asylum support system. So it fixes people in, st in space, they risk losing their support if they're absent from their accommodation. It's controlling people's finances, not only how much they get, but also what they can spend it on. You get people afraid to complain to accommodation providers about the inadequacy, about their unsafe or overcrowded accommodation because they fear reprisals from the Home Office. And then when people's claims are refused, they're left destitute, dependent on friends, relatives, charities. So none of the reality of this system, which for me is an abusive system, none of the reality of the system is mentioned in the, in the new plans. Instead, the plans talk a lot about the taxpayer burden, the cost of the system. But for me, the real cost, both to the taxpayer and to those seeking asylum themselves, is this whole infrastructure of suspicion, surveillance and control, which extends across the Home Office and its private contractors, which are extracting profits not only from detention centres, but also from asylum seeker housing, prepayment cards and so on. So I'm sorry, this is a bit of a really long way around to saying, no, I don't think the state of motivation is justified, but I think we need to be really clear that this is not a system being routinely abused. It's a system that routinely abuses those who are dependent on it. Um, and I think it's also worth highlighting before I shut up um, that the, it's also worth questioning whether the government really has any interest in its stated motivation. So for decades, as we've seen, um, asylum and immigration have been a political football with point scoring between parties over who can act toughest. And I feel that potentially what we're seeing in the current plans is a kind of shift in certain areas of the plans um, being transparently unworkable, being kind of set up to fail, most obviously in the um, issue of removing people to safe third countries. And I think this is arguably potentially the point that these plans are set up to fail, so long as the blame can be deflected elsewhere. So after all, this is a government that has stumbled from failure to failure over the last decade, and but despite that is looking all looking more impregnable than ever. And I think the political value of asylum to the current hard right political project is that it can posture to its core constituency by blaming those activist lawyers, the unelected judges, the French, whoever, for obstructing the government for when the failures are actually of the government's own making. Largely agree. Um, with what William said, um, I mean, it, it is a government, you know, uh, document. It's inherently political. What else do you expect? You know, it's, this is the way it is. You cannot take the politics out of asylum any more than you can take the politics out of the NHS or the benefit system or whatever. But there are very few votes in improving the asylum system, you know. There, 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 there's very little incentive, and that applies irrespective of whether we're talking about a Conservative Home Secretary or a Labour Home Secretary. At the same time, I cannot, I cannot hand on heart say that there is no abuse in this process, that everyone who presents themselves as um, an asylum seeker is, 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 is valid. Um, uh, there is going to be an incentive for people who do not qualify under ordinary immigration procedures to use asylum as a, as a means of entry. I mean, this is, and you cannot discuss this without like putting it in within, uh, you know, much wider context about the nature of the world in which we live and the vast social and economic inequalities. Um, uh, there's also abuse by the traffickers who, who are the most cynical and uh, uh, people who exploit people, who exploit, you know, vulnerable people. And this, again, this is part of the system because um, this is a system, the Refugee Convention was set up in the 
post-war period. Um, and the world has struggled, it's failed to deal with this as a, as a global issue. So it becomes the responsibility of individual states. And um, uh, there's also, I would highlight, there, is, there are some, I, I, I emphasize some exploitative legal representatives. There's, very, there's many very high quality legal representatives. There are some legal representatives who um, treat asylum claimants appallingly um, for their own profit. So, you know, uh, as, as regards the, the government motivation, well, I mean, you know, as, as William says, I mean, this is a change. You know, this is just more and more of the same. Um, it, it's been like this. It, it's very difficult, actually, to see, see it changing because of the, the politics of asylum. I, I, I think, um, uh, as I said, I mean, in my introductory comments, I said part of the real challenge is, well, what will actually happen in practice? Because, you know, a new plan for immigration, it's just words printed on a, a piece of paper. What, what, what's important is what actually happens in, in practice in terms of implementing it. And that's where I think the, the, problems, um, the problems begin. Um, and I, I also I completely agree with the point about administrative systems and processes themselves um, designed to provide people with safety themselves become means of oppression in their own rights, because the asylum process is um, is, is 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 like that. Um, I think the real challenge is what what can be done about it. So that would be my sort of take on it. William, you talked about the uh, the sort of kind of two tier system of asylum, which is already there, uh, where people who are resettled get sort of. Uh, a better treatment, so to speak, than people who have sought asylum um, by their own means. Uh, but that this uh, sort of two-tiered system is being quite significantly um, strengthened, it seemed, or that this, um, the difference between the two groups, uh, if we can categorize them like that, um, will be stronger. Uh, and so you talked about people who enter illegally and that there are no safe legal routes and in the report, they have sort of coined this term, uh, at least I'd not heard it before, of people who are deemed inadmissible. And I've seen in the media as well that this is now being used, the inadmissibles. And I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about what does this actually mean? Because a lot of, a lot of people um, have tried to argue that, in fact, it isn't illegal to enter a country to claim asylum but actually is a human right to uh, to cross an international border in order to seek asylum. So it's not actually an illegal entry. Um, I guess the one thing that is emphasised in, or, or seems to me that be important for this term inadmissible, is that uh, someone has crossed through a so-called safe country. Um, and this, according to the government, then makes the person inadmissible. Uh, or, so, so I was wondering if you, if you wanted to say something about that. What, what does it actually mean then to be inadmissible? Um, and what are the implications of that? Is it actually illegal or what does it mean? I wonder if, Robert, do you want to go first on this one? Well, there's no like legal way to claim asylum from outside the UK. So the whole, the, the operation of the Refugee Convention requires people to enter other countries illegally. 
There's no other way of, of claiming asylum. So for, for many years, um, European countries have tried to resolve this. And, you know, to, because once, some, once someone comes into the country um, and the longer they're here, the more and more difficult it becomes ultimately to, re to remove them if they are not deemed, you know, to qualify for refugee status. And the term inadmissible, um, I mean, I don't know, know how this is going to work because the, the bill, the, the law, the draft law to, to implement this has not been published yet. Every single aspect of what the Home Office is trying to do will be subject to legal challenge. OK, that's just what it's like in asylum and the huge volumes of like legal challenge. But the main problem with the inadmissible people is that, well, what are you actually going to do with them? So someone comes into the UK via France. OK, and the Home Office's usual approach has been, well, let's return them to France um, because it's a safe third country. And uh, when the UK was a member of the um, European Union, there were procedures um, uh, for, for doing that. Well, the real problem is going to be um, the Home Office are reaching returns agreements with other countries, and then those other countries, the safe third countries, accepting um, uh, people deemed in, inadmissible, how that is actually going to work. And in any event, all of this has been subject to a lot of legal challenge. So for instance, people who have come into the UK via Hungary, well, that in turn uh, prompts analysis of, well, how robust and fair and effective are Hungarian asylum procedures? Well, the courts in various cases have said, well, they're, they're not fair. They're going to result in a risk of um, reform, you know, returning people elsewhere. And there's been similar cases in regards to, to, to Greece and, and other countries. So I've got real doubts about how this is, this is going to work and what it actually generates is a lot of what's called like satellite issues rather than the core issue. So the core issue is, does this person, um, you know, qualify for refugee status? Well, actually, if they do, just give it to them and let them get on with their lives because they're at real risk of return a real risk of persecution or torture on return to their country of origin. So it's like a filtering process. But, you know, there's been, you know, many years of like these types of filtering processes, coming unstuck, legal challenges, administrative problems. And this is the major problem with the Home Office, the administrative challenges and its lack of capacity. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's not a great deal new here. Um, it, it, so much will depend upon how it actually works in practice. And in the meantime, these systems, these processes, they take time, they cost money, people get bound up within them for years. Um, there, there have been cases in the past of, you know, people waiting decades for um, an, an initial asylum petition from the Home Office. So, you know, it's a lot, so much depends upon how it's actually going um, to work. And the risk is the process itself becomes a means of oppression and the process itself is, operates so the Home Office um, wishes. It operates as a potential deterrent. 
very often you're talking about people who are absolutely desperate who's you know you know if if it's it's a choice between you know going back to their country of origin and facing persecution or torture or going through this process well you know they'd probably prefer to go through this process but it's a terrible um it's a pretty awful situation yeah i mean i'd agree with most of what robert says and i think this is when i talked about the kind of the way these plans are sort of set up to fail i feel that this this idea of sending people back to a safe third country when no returns when the government is well aware that no returns are in place seems to be an area where it is kind of transparently set up to fail you know the, the document makes no mention of the fact that there used to be a mechanism as robert says the dublin convention for returning people to eu countries and the home secretary pretty patel is presumably well aware that her government failed to negotiate any replacement for that as part of the Brexit deal. So it seems to me that this is, and, and both that and, and the legal challenges around it, kind of which keeps the public debate focused on this on this issue, which, it, it, so I feel, yeah, it, it, keeps, it keeps the public debate focused on, the, on this issue. Um, where I would slightly disagree is, I, obviously a lot remains to be seen in terms of what the legislation actually says, but I, I think that a more a tangible impact um, is going to be in this creation of a new status, this new temporary status for those who are deemed inadmissible, who can't be removed to France or Hungary or wherever, um, but who will not be granted refugee status because they're deemed to have entered the UK illegally. Um, And what the plans state is that they will be given 30 months leave to remain, um, after which they can apply again, but they will be constantly reassessed for removal. And then when, while they've been given leave to remain and the right to work, they will have no recourse to public funds and limited family reunion rights. So I think there's been a lot of commentary around the unworkability of removals to safe third countries. But I think it's this, it's here that we might see, see the, the real tangible impact of the, of the plans. It's going to make it much, much harder for people. It's going to, it's going to people, keep people in a permanent state of limbo make it much harder for people to lay down roots to integrate into the community and so on and being with no recourse to public funds so no access to the state safety net this will be a super exploitable workforce for working in our care homes um, um, delivery services uh, warehouses etc and they'll join the vast category of migrants who already have leave to remain with no recourse to public funds such as those who are on spouse visas so um, organisations like the Joint Council for the Welfare of um, Immigrants has done a lot of research about the devastating impacts of this policy, which forces people into debt and destitution, renders them vulnerable to abuse in, at home and in the workplace. And the effects of this became particularly evident during the pandemic when people were um, laid off from their jobs, from their precarious low paid jobs and became destitute because they had no access to um, the furlough scheme or to um, welfare benefits. That said, the new plans do say that um, people will have no people who've got this new temporary status will have no recourse to public funds except in cases of destitution. So presumably, this will be similar to those who are currently no recourse to public funds who can apply to have the condition lifted. But this application process is another laborious um, process that requires meticulous documentation, six months bank statements, explaining every single transaction, letters of letters from friends and relatives explaining how people have been supported. All this evidence is not easy to gather at the best of times, and especially not when you're on the brink of destitution um, or destitute. So it seems to me that the likely upshot of this new status is a permanent limbo for a very exploitable workforce, another layer of unnecessary bureaucracy and more senseless destitution. I 
uh, building on on that, um, uh, the other point we haven't mentioned is, and I don't think the white the immigration plan mentions about hostile environment policies. That you know, all of the services, all of the things that we do, like have a bank account, have have a um, a driving license, work, rent property, all of that is basically impossible if you have not got an immigration status. So ultimately, I mean, this is like, you know, we've got a considerable number of people, irregular migrants currently in the country who are caught by these policies, right? There's a long-term discussion have at some stage in this country about, well, what do we actually do with such people? Because hostile environment measures, on the whole, have not led to an increase in voluntary returns. People, you know, thinking, oh, life in the UK is so terrible, it's so uncomfortable for me, I'm going to go back to my country of origin. Now, the Prime Minister himself has said, well, you know, we effectively, we have a de facto amnesty for irregular migrants. And at some stage, we've got to have this discussion um, about this. And it, it really becomes like um, a litmus test of society's humanity. I mean, do you, is it really acceptable to have people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in destitution, working illegally, subject to exploitation and vulnerable people? Um, and at some stage, we, we that's going to that's going to come up as as a debate. Yeah, I would completely agree with that, and I'd really I really hope we do have that debate at some stage. Part of me feels a bit sceptical that that debate is ever going to happen when so much of this population is invisible. People may be destitute, but they're kind of hidden homeless. Um, they're very, they're much less likely to approach local authorities for fear of um, information being shared with the Home Office. So I've been part of setting up a migrant destitution fund in Greater Manchester um, during the pandemic um, to provide cash grants to people who are destitute um, because of their immigration status. Um, and one of the things that has come out very clearly is that I, something that from my research I've been very aware of is the level of destitution within the asylum system. But what's been kind of revealed through the destitution fund is another whole tranche of um, destitution that is completely out, out of the public eye because people are completely utterly fearful of approaching the home office, of approaching even of approaching solicitors, of approaching social services if they have children. Um, so yeah, as Robert says, it would be very welcome if we could have that debate. But I think when so much, when so when this population remains so invisible and so beneath the radar, all we have is the kind of the cheap stereotypes, and that's what the, that's all that the public debate at present can be based on. But I hope that that can change sometime. Speaking of uh, being sort of invisible, um, one of the uh, of the changes is the introduction of reception centres for certain asylum seekers. Um, so, uh, would uh, William, would you like to uh, briefly perhaps just say who, who does this apply to and what are the likely implications? Yeah, so there have been a, a lot of kind of obviously very worrying proposals. Um, one, one of the most worrying, the, the, the one of the most ones attracted the most outrage has been the idea of offshore processing centres, which seems again to be kind of set up to be unworkable, and it feels like. Um, both the liberal outrage and the impossibility of ever implementing it are kind of equally generative of likes for the government. On the other hand, I feel that reception centres for um, new asylum applicants is something that is much more likely to be implemented happening in other um, European countries, and partly because it's already been happening here during the pandemic, as the 
you know, there was already an acute shortage of asylum seeker housing, but when with the eviction ban, um, this shortage got even worse. So people were increasingly housed in hotels and then most notoriously, um, as we've been hearing about in the news recently, in barracks. Um, so one of the key planks of the 1999 legislation which established the current system was to disperse people outside London and the Southeast to areas where housing was cheap, usually depressed areas. Um, yeah, depressed areas where housing was cheap. Um, and obviously this is, was very problematic in terms of the lack of any sort of support infrastructure in these spaces. But in longer term dispersal areas, such as Greater Manchester, where I've been doing my research, what's developed over the last 20 years has been not only the support infrastructures, but also spaces of welcome. So one of the places that I've been doing my research has been a community garden in Manchester, which does um, therapeutic gardening sessions for people who've been damaged, not only by their experiences in their country of origin, but by their experiences with the home office in this country. And this community garden is about creating a beautiful space and really rooting intensely precarious lives by creating a, a sense of ownership. And I think it's really important that participants talk about the garden, the space and the other people, they talk about it as their family. And obviously it's really important not to romanticize these spaces of welcome. Each of them needs to be approached on their own terms. The politics vary across them. And ultimately they are always only mitigating the harm that's been inflicted by the Home Office and its subcontractors. But it's also really important to highlight that these spaces exist. And I suspect that this is a big part of the motivation behind the reception centre model. So a lot of the um, stuff in the news we've seen about the horrendous condition in um, barracks where people have been housed, you know, they've been described by inmates as like a war zone. There's recently a High Court decision where the conditions were deemed unlawful. Um, but one of the kind of one of the key points about this is that the invisibility of what goes on inside to support agencies, the difficulty of getting information out. Um, and I suspect this is kind of precisely the point, but the invisibility of these spaces restricts the building of support networks um, and yeah, make, it makes it that much harder for people to support those who are inside. But at the same time, these sites acquire a visibility in the public eye. So we've seen a sort of far right mobilization around saying that, you know, these spaces are good enough for uh, these barracks, they're good enough for our boys, why are they not good enough for asylum seekers? We've seen the far right harassment of asylum seeker hotels during the pandemic. So I feel that this reception center model is like the reception centers are going to become a locus both for progressive outrage and for far-right harassment. So this kind of febrile and ever more polarized discourses that pass for a public debate in the country will come to center increasingly on these spaces. Thank you. Robert, I wondered if I can ask you some, um, some more legal questions um, yeah, about, sure. the, um, about the uh, proposals. So there, are, there were two things that jumped out to me, which was seemed to sort of perhaps uh, make it harder, basically, to um, to claim asylum. And one was to change, so it's to change the standards of asylum assessments. So partly it was about credibility assessments and kind of um, strengthening, it seemed to me, to strengthen or to make it more demanding uh, of who will be seen as credible. And the other part was to introduce an evidence level that they call well there were two different terms one was called balance of probabilities and the other they called reasonable likelihood so these two things I wondered if you were able to say something about what the implications of those would be 
I think you've got to start off by looking at the situation of someone claiming asylum, right? So typically, they're someone who has um, fled at short notice from their country of origin. They might have been tortured. They might have been um, threatened in their home country. They've then gone through a very perilous and long journey, very difficult journey. The, the type of journey that, you know, the three of us, we couldn't really like imagine what it's like, you know, going, um, being stuck in the back of a lorry for like days or, or going across the Sahara and then crossing the Mediterranean, very unsafe journey. And then they come to the UK and they claim asylum. And then um, they've got to show that their story is, is true, okay? And um, that's a really problematic situation. Now, if you look at the, it from the Home Office's perspective, the Home Office will say, oh, this person claimed asylum. The first time we asked them for their story, they said this, then they've completely changed it. Then they've got new evidence. So the Home Office will say, well, you know, that th this person's story is shifting and that causes us to doubt this person's credibility. So that's to like look at it from, from both sides. Um, uh, and the basic problem is, it's just incredibly difficult to know who's telling the truth and who isn't. And if you look at it from the perspective of the person seeking asylum, they might be traumatized. Um, they come from a very different culture from what we have in the, in the UK. They might be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, uh, and in inevitably, um, they're not going to give a full and complete account on the first time they, they present their case. So the, the, the real challenge for the decision maker is, well, how do you decide if someone is credible or not? And the basic um, uh, problem is that it's impossible to have hard and fast rules about which stories are credible and which are not credible. And the risk is that any attempt really set a first and a hard and fast rule. So for instance, someone who doesn't mention the whole of their claim at the first um, telling on the, on when they first claim asylum, if they then change their story, well, that means they're, they're completely you know, lying or whatever. The risk of having any of that, a, a rule like that, is that it will be inapplicable, it will be inappropriate for a substantial number of people. And actually, this is something the Home Office has done before. So there's an Act of Parliament from 2004, the Asylum and uh, Immigration, the Asylum Treatment of Claimants Act 2004, that introduced um, similar, like hard and fast rules about assessing asylum. And essentially the court said, well, these are not hard and fast rules. They're just general rules of thumb. So if someone doesn't really disclose the, the full details of their asylum claim initially, that could potentially damage someone's credibility. But the court said it all depends on the individual case. So in practice, it those hard and fast rules that were introduced in 2004 have no real impact on decision making. 
the decision maker, whether it's like a home office decision maker, which is very junior and uh, they're often agency um, staff, um, or if it's a, it's a tribunal judge on appeal, they've still got to make the actual decision. Do I, is this, what is the story that this person's saying? Is it reasonably likely to be true? And the basic fundamental issue with a credibility it, with the credibility issue is that there's no way of knowing for certain who's telling the truth and who doesn't. Okay, so the Home Office could do this, but I, I very much doubt it's going to make that much difference whatsoever because any law that the Home Office makes and Parliament approves is subject to judicial interpretation. And in the past, the courts have weakened, they've watered down attempts to set you know, blanket rules about assessing credibility. So that leads us on to the, the next issue. Okay, it's really difficult for to know who's telling the truth and who isn't. So how do we assess that? Okay, so lawyers have a way of dealing with certainty and uncertainty, and it's called standard of proof. So if someone's accused of a crime, the prosecution have to prove the person is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And that's a very, very high standard of proof. So it, 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 it's justified on the basis that it, it, it's better for, um, uh, it's better to um, uh, it's someone who is guilty um, than, no, I forgot the other way around. It's, it's better to err on the side of caution, essentially, okay? Well, that's a very high standard of proof. The normal standard of proof in like civil litigation is called the balance of probabilities. It's like a 50-50 um, uh, uh, approach. Well, in asylum cases, it's lower than that. The, the standard of proof is, 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 some, is what someone's saying, is it reasonably likely to be true? And the reason why the asylum process has a much lower standard of proof is because the consequences are so bad for the person affected. Because, you know, there's no other like legal process in the UK that could actually result in someone being returned to a con their country of origin, being, you know, killed or tortured or persecuted. You know, the, the most serious crime we have is like murder. And um, what can happen, someone will get a life sentence. No equivalent to um, what happens in asylum. So that's why the lower standard of proof is applied. And another reason why the lower standard of proof is applied is because asylum decision making is not just based on what has happened in the past, but what might happen in the future. Is there a risk, does this person have a risk of persecution on return to their country of origin? So that involves the decision maker looking at what could happen in the future. And of course, no one can prove what is going to happen in the future because the future is fun always fundamentally uncertain. Now what the Home Office wants to do in the new immigration plan is to change the standard of proof. So it would say that when it comes to past events in, a, in an asylum seeker's case, they would have to prove their case not to the existing standard of proof, not to the reasonable degree of likelihood test, but they would have to prove it to the balance of probabilities test. Well, that raises very obvious difficulties in terms of increasing the evidential burden, okay? 
um, because of the situation that almost all asylum seekers um, find themselves in. So the reasonable degree of likelihood the lower test would still apply when it comes to future risk. It would not apply when it comes to um, assessing evidence concerning past events. So the decision maker would have to still make a, a decision, is this person entitled to asylum? So they'd have to apply a higher standard of proof when it came, comes to past events and a lower standard of proof when it came to future events. This is just a recipe for confusion and muddle and, and problems. Okay, it, it's, it's, what is going to happen in, in practice is that um, decision makers, they're going to make mistakes about which standard of proof applies in regard to, to which, which um, contract. Okay, and it's just going to lead to, it, it's going to lead to proliferation of, of legal challenges um, and probably poor quality and inconsistent decisions and cases going up to the, the higher courts. But this is nothing new, because this is what the Home Office does. It's got a, an enormously complex set of rules, right, that it makes more complex. And then the question becomes, well, how do you interpret this? And you have cases going, years, cases going round and round the system, going up to the highest courts. In the meantime, many other cases are stacked up behind that. You're talking tens of thousands. Of cases and they could have just been you know decided more quickly under simpler rules so it's an attempt to to load the dice against asylum claimants what difference would it have in practice I, I, I don't know I mean it would depend upon how those tests are applied and the, the, the challenge is you know both the, the, the different standards of proof no one knows what they mean Right? No one really knows what is what is the balance of probabilities. What is a reasonable degree of likelihood? It would mean one thing to one decision maker, another thing to someone else, and they both probably have arrived at more or less the same decision anyway. So, you know, asylum decision making is inherently problematic. This is a way of trying to make it more complex, um, to make it more difficult to qualify, and it's probably it will adversely affect many asylum seekers, but also at the, on the other hand, it would just lead to unnecessary um, litigation and confusion. Uh, but this is nothing new. This is what happens in the asylum system. Thanks. And have you got any final things you'd like to add? Yeah, I think um, it's important to discuss not only the content of this, these plans, but also the consultation pr process themselves, which for me is kind of indicative of the populist reshaping of the UK's political processes. So the plans were published at the end of March. They were then open to six week consultation, which Priti Patel described as a people's consultation um, for the British public. Excluded from the notion of the British public were those who've lived at the sharp edge of these policies. There was no attempt to elicit views of asylum seekers or refugees themselves. The document was only available in English and Welsh. But maybe this is all to be expected. Maybe that's unsurprising. But more broadly, it's very evident that the government was not interested in listening to the stakeholders. So the consultation process was only six weeks rather than the usual three months. 
It was run by a private consultancy called Britain Thinks, full of leading questions based on dubious assumptions, asking about how effective different policies to meet the government's aims might be, but no debate of the government's aims, no space for debating the government's aims themselves. And perhaps most extraordinary, the, consult the consultation period was timed to coincide with an election period, which thus excluded elected politicians from devolved administrations, local authorities, who could all be expected to have an opinion um, on this, um, because they weren't allowed to speak during an election period. Um, one thing that has been encouraging is the robust condemnation from even from big mainstream organisations in the refugee sector, not only of the plans themselves, but of the consultation process. So Refugee Action um, coordinated an open letter dismissing the consultation as a sham, which is extraordinary given the Refugee Action only a few years ago was accused of being complicit with the Home Office and its voluntary returns programme. And this open letter described the plans as a political manifesto, which I think is spot on, because after all, this is a government which exists in perpetual campaigning mode. I, I would agree with that. I, I would add that um, uh, the Home Office was responsible for the Windrush scandal. Uh, uh, the, the current asylum system is, is a mess. Politicians are motivated by very short-term uh, objectives. Putting right and improving the asylum process is, is not a short-term quick fix. That's got to be a long-term that there should be more of an attempt to build uh, consensus about this. Um, politicians, you know, they are motivated to, to win votes and, and play to the gallery. Um, and it does appear, I mean, it does appear that there are many things in here that are, if, 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 if the Home Office is not deliberately setting itself up to fail, it, it might well fail anyway, and it just leads to you know, more of a blame shifting between, say, the Home Secretary and the courts or, or with the refugee community. So it's, it's pretty much just like more of the same. There are alternatives. There are better things that, that could be done. Um, you know, all governments have got problems when it comes to immigration. It, it, is, it is difficult to manage um, because of the political pressures, but there there are some good things, but overall, um, I, I think this is um, this is a negative. I've got a negative outlook on this. To find out more about the work of Robert Thomas and William Wheeler, as well as the charities mentioned in this episode, please see the links in the episode notes or on Twitter at Talking Mig. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening. Bye.